0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. To some who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers,
1: or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get.
0: will be exalted.
1: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. If you're using one of the Black Bibles, it's page 732. And what we're going to do is look at that very parable that we just saw shared by us with with these three. And uh, as we look at it together today, I want to talk to you about the place of prayer. Well, last week, Steve... Uh, shared with us uh, a message on the first eight verses of this chapter which Jesus told that parable so that we would always pray and never give up and we learned that it didn't just mean never give up about praying about certain things but never give up as we wait for that day to come when Jesus returns That prayer can actually be one of the resources that helps us as we wait for the Lord's return. It can help us continue to grow in our trust and dependence on God. So he said, persistent prayer produces persistent faith. It enables us. Now today, we're going to talk about prayer from a different vantage point. If you're following along in the notes, what I hope you'll see is that in this parable, Jesus teaches how to practice humility as we pray. Jesus teaches how to practice humility as we pray. We do this often, but I want to ask you once again to read these banners just to remind us of what God's vision is for us as a church, that he's more interested in who we're becoming than just what we're doing. And so uh, let's read this together again. We are fighting shallow Christianity by becoming H3 disciples of Jesus who are hungry, humble, and hospitable. So as we think about this, Today this parable is going to specifically help us in the area of practicing this posture of humility. And I want to just stop and say something to you about that. When you think about praying and you think about humility, that I use the word practicing on purpose. I've just seen a lot of people turn the Christian life into perfectionism where they think it's a performance. When in fact, it's a relationship that we practice every day and practicing in means that we're not always going to get it right, but that we keep practicing so that it becomes more and more a part of us over time. And so we're not always going to be humble, but we can practice humility. And when we get away from humility, what's the answer? To keep practicing it so that it becomes more and more a part of us. And again, I don't know what you think about when you think of prayer. Uh, Some of us think of prayer as something we do when we're in trouble or something that's mainly a set-aside thing that some people do for hours and hours, and it certainly includes that. But prayer is an all-the-time thing with God. It's a running conversation with God where we both talk and listen. And as we relate to them, this is why this is such an incredible gift, such an incredible resource to be able to have the privilege to interact with God all day long and keep that running conversation going on, acknowledging him all day long is an incredible uh, thing. And you don't have to quit your job to do this. This is something we can learn and practice. But I also want you to see that our approach and posture before God is everything. If you're following along, our approach and the posture of our heart before God is everything. That's what we're going to see here. Up here, uh, again, you guys get a chance just to experience the sophisticated artwork that I'm capable of. And for those of you that are listening online, I just have the word God at the top of this whiteboard, and then I have, uh, again, a simple stick figure below the word God with some space in between, and then out to the right of that first stick figure, I have another stick figure with space in between that. And here's what I wanna talk to you about today, is that when we think of prayer, prayer is this space between us and God. And what goes on in that space is huge and it is vital to our life and not only does that but it also then influences this space between us and other people and so in this passage today where Jesus tells this parable he's going to help us see that if this space between us and God is unhealthy it will have ramifications for how we look at and relate to other people that this is all about how we relate to God. Prayer is one of the ways we relate to God all day long, all week long. And some of us are pursuing it you know, in a healthy way, and some of us are still just beginning. Some people haven't discovered this yet, but this is what Jesus wants to teach us today. So here's the question. Why is this message so important? Here's why. If prayer is what helps us persevere, if prayer is what helps us have that dynamic life with Christ, then along the way, especially since it's a marathon and not a sprint, what Jesus does today is he teaches us that there are things that can poison our prayers. There are things that can hinder our prayers. There are things that can get in this space, and as a result, they can affect all of our life. And so if you would, would you read that first verse with me? Uh, The first two verses there in that first gray box. Let's read why he told this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he says, look, there's going to be times when you may become self self-righteous again. You may slip into self-righteousness. You may slip into this thing where you look at other people and whether anybody else knows you're doing it or not, you're looking down on them. You're beginning to feel superior in the way that you look at them. And therefore, you need what I'm about to teach you so that when you fall into that, You know which way to move back, how to practice humility instead of the ugliness of self-righteousness. I would love to tell you, after walking with the Lord several decades now, that I never fall into self-righteousness, but I do every week. And as a result, I am so thankful. This parable has helped me so many times. Bring me back to center line. It is so filled with hope. And I hope you walk out seeing how practical this can be as you think about the space between you and God and the space between you and other people. Let's pray before we look at this further. Now, God, we are so, so touched that you would want to help us live the Christian life. And we pray that we would listen now and that your spirit would speak to us, that you would really be our teacher. Because when you speak to us, it's totally different. Please teach us. In your name we ask. Amen. Okay, so here's uh, you'll notice that in the notes there, I want to talk to you about the Pharisee and the tax collector and also the remedy for righteousness, self-righteousness. So uh, the Pharisee, notice I put the, uh, just the initial P next to that and for the tax collector, the initials TC. Why? Just because it, otherwise those words wouldn't have fit in the notes in all these lines. And so it's kind of a practical thing, but uh, it'll help move us along. So the first thing I want you to to understand before we go any further in the notes here is this. Here's why self-righteousness is so tricky. Because it's subtle. (laughs) We don't even realize it's creeping up. And so Jesus knew this, and and the Pharisee actually is experienced this and doesn't realize it. And so if you're following along, I want you to know that when the early first listeners of Jesus heard this parable... They, if you're following along, that audience assumes the Pharisee wears a white hat and the tax collector a black hat. That The audience assumes the Pharisee wears a white hat and the the tax collector wears a black hat. Let me explain. Haddon Robinson writes this. When I was a boy growing up in New York City, one of the nicest ways for me to spend a Saturday afternoon was at the matinee of the neighborhood theater. He's in his 80s now, so Haddon Robinson is talking about this. He said a group of us would arrive early and warm up on a series of cartoons, but what we really went to see were the cowboy movies. We liked those movies because they were so predictable. The bad guys always wore gray or black and rode dark horses. Whenever they spoke, they spoke with a snarl. The good guys always wore white hats and rode white horses. And from time to time, they would stop and sing to us with their guitars. On Sunday, if we managed to make it to Sunday school, it sometimes seemed that the same people who had written the screenplay for the movie had also written some of our Sunday school lessons, for the characters we studied were also very gray or black and very white. We knew, for example... That had we been there for the showdown in Egypt between Pharaoh and Moses, Pharaoh would have been dressed in gray or black and Moses in white. And it was no surprise to us that David sang with a harp because in our minds that was a kind of old-fashioned guitar. As I grew older, though, I grew tired of those cowboy movies just because they were so predictable. They didn't deal with real people living in a real world. Instead, they usually dealt with cardboard characters in a tissue paper play. In turning from some of those stories of our childhood, many of us have unthinkingly turned from some of the ripping good stories Jesus told. We have heard, too many t- we've heard them too many times. As a result, we've concluded that Jesus, like the cowboy movies, dealt with caricatures rather than real characters. And friends, I just want to tell you, I have that same struggle whenever I hear the word Pharisee. I tend to think of someone who was just so full of themselves. But that is too simplistic, friends. The truth is, is if you met these people on the street, you would be struck by their passion for God. You would be struck by the fact that they were willing to go public when so many people were not, and saying, I will seek to obey the whole law of God every day for the rest of my life. You would be struck by the fact that they tended to lift the moral climate of the community rather than pull it down. And you would find yourself being in awe that they would want to memorize the word of God. On the other hand, if you ran into a tax collector, who we often think are just wonderful people, they were actually snakes. They were people that sold themselves for money. They were people that were willing to throw people under the bus from their own community. They were hired by Rome to actually tax their own people, and they used inside knowledge to pull it off. And they pulled down the moral atmosphere, not only by their stealing and by their greed, but also by their moral uh, willingness to just throw any kind of moral standard away. And so again, when we do this, we need to know that we would tend to put a black hat on the Pharisee and a white hat on the tax collector many times. And so just notice the first audience would have just been, in fact, they would have been awed they would have been odd that a tax collector was even in the temple at all. So Jesus tells this parable, and he has everybody's attention now, because he's going, you could not have had two more contrasting people in the same room. So people are all ears. What's going to happen next? Notice, if you're following along, that both have a righteousness problem. Both have a righteousness problem or a righteousness deficit. The tax collector seems to know it. The Pharisee does not seem to know it. And so what do I mean by a righteousness problem? Maybe you've read scriptures like the one I'm going to put on the screen now, but Romans 3, 9 and 10. This is what we read. Well, then, should we conclude that Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown, he's writing to Jewish people, for we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, a Gentile is anyone who's not what, friends? Jewish, right. So that covers just everybody, okay? Are under the power of sin. Let's read this together. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Is there anybody that's righteous, friends? No, not even one. That means both these guys have a righteousness problem. One's aware of it, the other one does not seem to be aware of it. And we can easily say, well, of course he's aware of it. He's such a snake. But friends, the truth is, is that when you and I are not aware that we have this righteousness deficit, this righteousness gap, this righteousness problem, it can be trouble. Romans three twenty three. that same chapter goes on and says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. How many people? All. Oh. How many people are righteous? None. So this is what's going on. Now, that means that whenever anybody walks into the temple to pray, that means whenever anybody walks into a church service, we have a righteousness problem. And how we deal with this righteousness problem is huge. Now let me just stop and say something. There are millions of people that are never going to come into a church building. And they know they have a righteousness problem. They're not necessarily conscious that it's about God and them, but they know that there is something inside their lives where they have to justify their existence somehow. They have to prove that they really do need to be in this world, that they're valuable, that there's something about them that needs to be approved or accepted, that needs to pass the test. We all live with a sense of this, even though we may not use the word righteousness because it's fallen into, like, Bible hands, and some people are God talk. But righteousness is something all of us live with every day. In fact, if you're following along, righteousness simply means to be approved, accepted, accepted. Uh, another idea here is it passes. I, I had past scrutiny. If you'd just make it passes scrutiny, it means to pass the test. And this idea of righteousness means that both these guys came in and how they dealt with their righteousness problem is very interesting. Now, I love what Kent Hughes writes, um, uh, I did love what he wrote and uh, I don't know where I put it, but that's beside the point. Here's what he said. This guy, when he prays, look at verses 11 and 12. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. What does he name? He names people that are robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or tax collectors. And I fast twice a week, and I tithe, I give a tenth of all I get. Now, here's what I want you to see. If we caricature him, we picture him praying like this, God, I thank you. And we don't realize how subtle this is. Kent Hughes says, it is right to thank God from saving us from behaviors that are destructive. In a way, it was right to say, thank you for not letting me go there. And thank you for prompting me to do good things. So that, that's good. And we should say there, but for the grace of God, go I. And we should have that. But there's still something wrong with his prayer. And there's still something wrong with the way he deals with righteousness. And so what I, I want you to see next is that in God's presence, if you're following along, the Pharisees proud and unfazed The tax collectors melted. The Pharisee has become proud and unfazed by God's presence, and the tax collectors melted, broken, gripped. And so what's going on there? It shows us that it's possible to bow our heads in prayer and not be affected. It shows that we can become over familiar with God and forget who we're talking to it shows that we can actually begin to make God in our own image to make him more palatable or more easy for us just to stay the way we are so years ago I've shared this before but years ago I heard something I've never been able to shake and here it is Bill Hybels pastor of Willow Creek Community Church tells of an experience he had when the church's first auditorium was near completion The contractor and architect arranged to meet with Bill and some of the staff for a final inspection of their work. The morning of the inspection, one of the church staff arrived early and set up a spotlight, like the ones you see in a stage in theater productions, and was aiming it at various sections of the 45-foot high ceilings when Bill arrived. Bill took out a notebook, and together they noted a number of places where flaws and defects in the workmanship could be clearly seen. When the contractor and architect arrived and saw these two using a spotlight, they demanded immediately that the plug be pulled. No one's work could stand up under the hot, blazing brilliance of a light like that, they protested. And they quickly showed Bill and his staff the contract, which specifically agreed to an inspection under natural room lighting conditions only. Bill writes... You know, it's tempting for me to inspect my life under natural room lighting conditions and to feel very smug, self-satisfied, and self-righteous. But the Bible clearly indicates that none of us will be judged by God under natural room lighting conditions but before the blazing, brilliant light of Jesus. And uh, I forget that. I forget that God is righteous and true, holy and pure. He is awesome. And so you and I can walk into God's presence and forget whose presence we're in. Notice how he pulls this off, though. The Pharisee focuses on outward behavior The tax collector knows that God sees inside. The Pharisee focuses on outward behavior. The tax collector knows that God sees inside. Think about this. As we listen to the Pharisee's prayer, is he looking to God? I mean, he starts out saying God, but where is he really looking? He notices the tax collector. He's looking around. He's looking outside of himself. Notice he doesn't say, "Oh God, thank you that in my heart I'm becoming more patient." Thank you that I'm becoming uh, more loving in my heart. He doesn't talk about inside. He talks about, "I don't do this. I do this, this, this. All of it's outside." The tax collector realizes that God looks on the heart. I don't know about you, but I make value judgments all day based on outside. God looks on the inside. And when we pray, this is when prayer can serve us well. In this space, God can show us some things if we will let him make this a healthy place instead of what was happening between the Pharisee and God. And so... Uh, Notice if you're following along that something happens that's powerful in verse 13. Notice what he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you're following along in the notes, the tax collector prays this literally God, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. God, be mercy seated to me, the sinner. He doesn't say, I'm one of the other sinners. Even that Pharisee's a sinner, and even though he's acting proud and all that stuff, he's a sinner just like me. He goes, no. Right now, you're just showing me I'm the sinner. I don't have to compare myself to anybody else. But I know this. Unless you're mercy seated towards me, I don't have a prayer. I cannot relate to you rightly. Now, Do you have time for an Old Testament lesson? I don't know if you've ever had it explained to you what the mercy seat is, but even if you've watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, you've heard about the Ark of the Covenant, okay? And uh, so here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Let me read what Dwight Pentecost writes. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box about a yard long. Okay, so sometimes we picture it massive. It was just a yard long. It was covered with gold, and containing the stone tablets of the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments that he brought down from the mountain. The lid of that box was the mercy seat, constructed of pure gold, and having on each end of it angels, or seraphim, whose outstretched wings went backward and upward, almost meeting over the center of the mercy seat. Between those outstretched wings, God was imagined to dwell symbolically. It's where his Shekinah glory dwelt. As it stands, the ark is a picture of judgment intended to produce dread in the worshiper through a knowledge of his or her sin. But what does God see? For what does God see as he looks down between the wings of the angels? He sees the law of Moses that we have broken. He sees that he must act towards us as a judge if he's going to be righteous. But here is where the mercy seat comes in. And here is why it is called the mercy seat. Upon that covering of the ark, once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest sprinkled blood from an innocent animal that had been killed moments before in the courtyard of the temple. That animal was a substitute. It was an innocent third party dying in the place of the sinful people who deserved to die. Now, when God looks down from between the outstretched wings of the angels, he sees not the law of Moses that we have broken, but the blood of the innocent victim. He sees that punishment has been meted out, and now his love goes out in mercy to save the one who comes to him through faith in that sacrifice. And this was a foreshadowing of what would eventually be God coming to us in person, and Jesus becoming the mercy seat for us on the cross. But so just look at this. Here it is in gold. And if you see this next picture, we see that again, you see the lid is lifted up. Sometimes the mercy seat was also called the atonement. Cover in some of our Bible translations. And then if you look further, you again see that it was made of gold. You can see how the wings of the angels stand over again the mercy seat like that. And then here's this last picture that, although it's not perfectly rendered, you can see that inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law. And so God provided mercy so that we could come into his righteous presence through the sacrifice of another. So that it wasn't just, hey, here's how unrighteous you are, but here's how you can be made righteous. Here's how you can continue to know a righteousness that's not from you, but for you. Wow. So if you're following along, here's what I hope you'll see. Is that the Pharisee wants most to be right. The tax collector desires to relate rightly. The Pharisee wants most to be right. The tax collector desires to relate rightly. Some of you remember back in 2010 during our Colossians series, I shared how one morning as I was getting ready. Again, across the ticker of my mind, the Holy Spirit impressed on me, Jeff, right now, are you more interested in being right? self righteous Or are you more interested in relating rightly? Now, let me just say this, friends. Too many people think that Christianity is a game. It's about keeping score, that it's about rules. But it's a relationship. All of the Bible is relational theology. Jesus came to say, look, even righteousness is about being related rightly to someone. It's not just... Uh, doing wrong things. It's anything we do affects other people and affects our relationship with God. Therefore, he's regularly looking as, what does your heart want? Are you turning this into a game of, I'm right, you're wrong, or a game of, or a life, a relationship of, oh God, most importantly is this space between you and me. And how I relate to you, my approach to you, my posture before you is so important. Pride brings opposition and friction between us. Humility brings grace, mercy. Oh, God, help me not to miss that. And one last thing I want you to see. Would you read in the second gray box, verse 18, with me out loud? Jesus says this, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you're following along, the Pharisee goes home self or unjustified. The tax collector goes home God-justified. The Pharisee goes home self or unjustified. The tax collector goes home God-satisfied. Or, as Warren Wiersbe has said, the Pharisee went home self-satisfied. He probably felt pretty good about himself. The problem was, is he was completely disconnected from reality because his self-righteousness blinded him. And that doesn't just happen to Pharisees. That happens to pastors. That happens to you and me. And that's why we need this message. So what can we learn? What's the remedy for self-righteousness when we find ourselves subtly falling into it? What do we do? How do we practice humility in those moments? Well, here's three ideas that have been helpful to me. And again, these are things you and I can practice all day long. When addressing God, remember it's His presence I'm in. When addressing God, remember, it's his presence I'm in. Let me say something to you. Because he has made us righteous in Christ, there should be a sweetness in our approach to God. There should be a delight. As Steve talked about last week, we are not like the widow that has to pester God. We've been given a new identity, a new relationship. Therefore, we should approach God boldly, gladly, thankfully, because we have that freedom now, he's invited us. He's made us right with him. But here's the thing I want to say to you: there should be a sweetness, but not a swagger. Do you know what I mean by a swagger? What in the world? Sometimes I get so used to God, go, I'm here. Boy, are you blessed? And that it's subtle. It's subtle, friends. But instead, think about what it should be. It would be Oh, God, I'm in your presence, and you're like no other person I've ever met. I was thinking this week, if you study the people that got to be in God's presence, uh, they didn't come in with a swagger. Uh, Isaiah says that when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he immediately was overwhelmed with a sense of, woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He was so aware that his mouth was dirty. And he was a prophet. And he said, oh, God, help. And God healed him. One of the angels touched his mouth and called him again and said, okay, I'm making you righteous. Now you can continue to walk with me. John, who had walked with Jesus for three years on earth, says in Revelation, when he saw Jesus, In some of his ascended glory he fell at his feet as though dead it it so humbled him that he realized oh my goodness what a privilege to be in your presence and i could go on and on but you know what i'm saying there can be a sweetness but there doesn't need to be a swagger there should be an assurance but not an arrogance there can be a boldness but not a blindness we can remember What a privilege to be in your righteous presence, oh God, your merciful presence. The second thing is, is do I believe only God's mercy is what makes me righteous? Do I believe whenever I pray that only God's mercy is what makes me righteous? And in my notes, I put what keeps me righteous. Friends, it's not just a one-time thing. It's because of what Jesus has done once for all that I can stay in a right relationship with God, even when I get away from him that is an amazing thing he has made us righteous he is the one that keeps us rightly related with him when we get wrong oh my goodness what an assurance that means i don't have to keep performing that means i don't have to keep keeping score that means i don't have to keep trying so hard to prove that i'm important i can now have a tenderness and so i've shared this with you lately that after this many years the danger for me is that I get away from mercy. Instead of praying each time and say, God, I come to you on the merits of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me and the mercy he's offered through his death and resurrection. Instead of thinking like that, I start to think, uh, okay, God, uh, I need this, and I, I think about this, and okay, God, and uh, if you could do this as well. And all of a sudden, there's no, there's no reverence and gratitude. There's no sense of mercy, privilege. Because see, mercy does something to you. So some of you remember that in Matthew 9, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. And as he's dealing with some of these Pharisees who were struggling with self-righteousness, not all of them did, he says, again, notice our text says to some who were, you know, self righteous he noticed that they were criticizing Jesus for hanging out with the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and sinners. They were saying, look, are you just downplaying and watering down their righteousness problem? Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I'm not saying it's okay what they're doing, but you have forgotten mercy. So here's what he says, but go, this is what he says to the Bible teachers, these experts, these Pharisees, and he doesn't do it, friends, in a tone like, look, you jerk. He says, look, If you're willing, I can set you free from self-righteousness. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, all your sacrifices and all your religious things. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 here, what he's saying is, if you'll go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy, mercy will do something to you. It always will. And so over the years, the Lord's just kept saying to me, getting across the ticker of my mind, Jeff, get back to mercy. Every time you become self-righteousness, remember that you needed my mercy to even begin. You need my mercy to even continue. You'll need my mercy all the way to the end. As some songwriters said, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. How long? Forever. Forever. I was with a couple doing premarital counseling, and I was talking about how mercy can help you in your marriage. Because we all tend to get proud, and we all can close our spirits towards each other. But when we remember mercy, it changes the way we look at each other. It changes the space between us. And I was talking to him about how Jesus talked about mercy, and as I was, I said, what do you think of, what, what does mercy do? And the guy said, it makes your heart soft again. I said, that's right. It makes our heart tender instead of hardened or calloused or apathetic. Get back to mercy. The third thing is this, as I pray, is there a person I'm not seeing with eyes of mercy? As I pray, is there a person I'm not seeing with eyes of mercy? I told you, I make value judgments. You do too, it's part of our humanity. But if we just keep making value judgments and we never let mercy impact us, self-righteousness will settle in. I, here's how it happens. When you look at somebody, anybody, and you find yourself going, oh, brother. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Oh, bro. So Jesus teaches this parable because he knows that if we're going to keep walking through this world, we can easily be poisoned. Our prayers and our hearts, our our spaces can get all kinds of toxic in it. So uh, uh, um, one of the things about being a pastor is that I often get to encourage people and live the Christian life. And from time to time, I have to challenge people. If I see a brother or sister that's going off in a direction that's disobeying God, I have to say, hey, think about what you're doing. Play it out. Come on. And so I try and calibrate grace and truth. I try and have a posture of mercy and humility instead of pride. And sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I don't. It's one of the biggest challenges of my life. About a year, year and a half ago, I got into a conversation with a friend who I dearly loved and tried to challenge one of the things that they were choosing to do. And I prayed the whole time, and I really, and I walked away going, Well, I did my best, and that relationship was shattered. So I would keep remembering this friend. And as I would pray, I would just say, Oh God, please, whatever, whatever I might have gotten wrong, would you please do something in this guy's life? And so about six, nine months in, I just became aware one day the Holy Spirit just said, Jeff, There was a hint of self righteousness in your tone. And I go, Well, it was just a hint. Lord said, This space, Jeff, humble yourself before me. I'm talking to you for a reason, because that'll affect the way this space. So it took me several months, but I eventually wrote this person a note and said, I know we had to talk about difficult things, and I know God's challenging you, but. I had self-righteousness in my tone. I detect it now. And I know that that did not treat you with the honor and dignity you needed to be talked with. And I just want to ask you to forgive me. And the guy wrote me back and said, that's what I needed to hear. By me paying attention to this space, God had the power to begin to open that space. Friends, he wants to work in our lives. That's why prayer is so important our posture in it so I want to just give you time to practice humility before God this is a time for you just to bow your head maybe you, you haven't thought about being in his presence for a long time or if you have you've not been awed or gripped by his presence or melted by his presence but he wants to meet with you he's seeking you would you listen to him